when you give someone, you know, a 20 or a $100 bill, they take them to be with you. And you think, oh, wow, okay. You know, they have to test it. They have to see. They have to, to wonder, okay, is this true? Is this, is this valid? Is this legit? We have security and alarm systems on our home. We, we have liability insurances. We have moments, and this is an odd scenario, where we have to authenticate and show that we are not a robot. Have you ever had that happen when you're going on? You're trying to make a purchase, and it says, click these tiles to prove that you're not a robot. And I thought, am I a robot? And you go to, because when you go to push those tiles, it says, push all the tiles to the traffic light. And you push it, and it says, no, nope, you got it wrong. You're, you're, you're a robot. What does all that have to say? Well, it has to say that we've lost some of our social capital when it comes to uh, a culture. We've lost some of that ability to trust. And part of that is because of the way that, that society is. We have um, security systems on our homes. And we look at people a little bit suspiciously if we don't know them. Or if something's too good to be true, we immediately step back and think, this isn't how it should be. And that's really unfortunate because that's not the type of community that God intended for the world. And if you think about it for a moment, that, that should make sense to you. If God made us as his image bearers, if he made us as those who are born of truth, who are born of that which is right and good news and truth, then he expects us to be able to do the same. But in this world of deception and this world of communication, it's sometimes it's difficult to live that way. But within the kingdom of Christ, when Jesus comes onto the scene, he says, we're going to reset things. We're going to refocus them. We're going we're to fix things. Because the people that I want to make, the people that I'm calling into my kingdom, the, the type of character and the type of people that I'm expecting them to be are people of radical integrity. Are, are people who other people can trust. Are, are people that even those in the world can look to and say there's a genuineness about them, there's a, there's an honesty there, there's something that, that is different from the world around them. But how exactly does that look? And what does it look like? And how do we develop that within our own lives as kind of a radical integrity? Let's uh, discuss that a little bit this morning as we continue our sermon series. If you open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 33 through 37, and Jesus is going to talk about oath-keeping and making oaths and making promises. And again, if you remember what I said last week, when we talked about that difficult subject of divorce and uh, some of the, the difficulties there, did you notice that this is sandwiched between, right on the other side of talking about marriage, he's talking now about being faithful and honest to your vows and, and being the type of person that you need to be, uh, being genuine and honest. And I, I don't think that's by by accident. But let's look at verses 33 through 37 and see what our Lord has to say. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, and anything more than this cannot be for you. You know, 
what's interesting about this text is that there's some crossover with our own country. Because generally speaking, historically, whenever someone was giving sworn testimony in a country, people were asked to tell the truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. But there was an exception that was given at one point in our history. It was the Quaker Replacement Act of Acts of 1695. And to those who were considered Quakers, they no longer had to have religious oaths or binding oaths because of their uh, religious objections, their conscientious objections. And the reason that they didn't want to take those oaths and say, so help me God, was based upon this text. And so they felt this, this conscious objection to it, and so therefore there was kind of this allowance that was given. But the question is, is that what Jesus is teaching? Is that what he is teaching? Is he saying you can never make any oath, and if you're asked to, to make an oath in a contentious uh, situation, or maybe in court or something, that you can't do that? Well, initially it might seem like that, because in verse 34 it seems pretty clear, right? Where he says, do not take an oath at all. That seems pretty clear, pretty obvious. But when we take a look at closer look at this passage, Jesus isn't exactly excluding all oath taking. In fact, if he did that, he would outright be rejecting the law, which in Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13 gives the right to, uh, to make an oath in the name of God, but specifically it was meant to be in the name of God. And Jesus said in Matthew 5 and verse 17 that he was helping us to understand the deeper meaning of the law, not to necessarily destroy it or reject it, but the intention behind it. And the other reason that he's leaving out rejecting an oath outright is because later in 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 23, Galatians 1 and verse 20, Paul himself makes an oath. In the sight of God, he says, I, this is true, he's making an oath there. He's saying, if, if I don't do this, or if this isn't true, then I will stand before God because of that. And so in those instances, he's making an oath. So we've got a serious issue if Jesus is saying, you know, don't make any oath whatsoever, and then one of his top men is making oath in Scripture. And so just from that, we know Jesus isn't meaning, well, no oath whatsoever. And so his teaching is qualified in some way. But in what way? In what way? What is he addressing? Notice that he addresses four different categories that people are making oaths on or about. There's heaven, earth, Jerusalem, and your own head. Those are kind of the four categories, heaven, earth, Jerusalem, None of those is an oath to God. It's things surrounding God. It's things in close connection with God, you know, just close enough, close enough to make it significant. But it has nothing, no consequence, nothing to do with God, really. And so by swearing by these minor things, heaven, uh, earth, uh, and Jesus says there's some connection, right? Heaven, God's throne, earth, footstool. But by making these oaths and swearing by these minor things, they were acting as if, they were acting as if they were binding themselves to something, when in fact there was no clear consequence if they broke that oath. There was going to be no consequence. You swear by earth all day long. The earth's not going to hold you accountable. If you would make an oath by God, which they did at times occasionally in the past, there was more solemnity given. 
There's more seriousness about it. And that's why they were sparse. They were rare. They were done on rare occasions because they knew that if they made an oath and they said, I'm telling you, God is my witness, that I, they knew the implications of that. And yet they wanted a way because they, they knew that they needed to be able to make promises because they weren't the type of people that Jesus was expecting. They needed to be able to make promises. They needed to be able to authenticate their word to prove that they were who they were. And so they made these little loopholes. They said, well, I'll, I'll swear by this. I'll swear by this kind of kind of minor thing. And so there was no real consequence for breaking promises. And so it became a loophole for dishonesty and for faithlessness. And, and that was something that was very common in Israel during Jesus' day, is the faithlessness and the dishonesty that he is addressing and the frivolous faithlessness that was common in Israel's day. And what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to be God's people, there needs to be a depth of honesty about you. There needs to be not only a depth of honesty, there needs to be a radical integrity about you. That you're so genuine, that, you're, that you, that you keep your word, that whenever you come to someone and you say, I'm going to do this, that's all that's required. Your yes is yes, and your no is no. There's no flip-flopping. James would call it double-mindedness. Other scriptures call it having a double tongue. And what he means by that is where you say something to someone, I'm going to do this, and you turn around to somebody else and say, well, I'm not really that, not that big of a deal. No worry about that. Or you flip-flop. You walk it. That's what he's talking about. He says that's not the type of people that, that we are called to be. We're called to be one of radical integrity where if, if I tell Daryl something, Daryl knows Jacob's going to do that. And, and if I am not able to do it or if I don't do it, then there's a, there's a problem there. Because I told him that I was going to do it. And vice versa. And essentially what Jesus is saying is they don't hold up to the light, right? That's what all they're doing. They don't hold up to the light. They're not authentic. There's no genuineness there. See, we realize, we, we live, again, we live in such a time as this. We live in such a time where Jesus is demanding a radical integrity that I think is so complicit with the time and day that we live in. I mean, we, we make casual oaths, serious oaths, all the time. I swear on my mother's grave. I swear on my mother's grave. Or people say all the time, I swear to God. Now, often in those instances, they don't really mean that they swear to God. There's a casualness. We just kind of throw that out very, very casually. And he says here that it, it's used so frequently that it diminishes the value of the one of the one who is speaking it. And Jesus says, I want my people to be the ones that they said they're going to do and they're going to do it. There's a radical integrity about them. And he's trying to prevent and to promote this type of social casualness, this type of community. Let me tell you, if that is not there in a church, if people can't trust each other in a church, uh, if you can't trust your leadership, if you can't trust that, that you care about each other, when big issues come up, it, it's going to be exposed. Because if you can't trust each other in this genuine way, it's going to create cracks. It's going to create difficulties. You know, there's times where I have to preach about some difficult things that I don't necessarily enjoy preaching about. Or, or maybe things that maybe he even disagrees with me on. And I think the only way that I can talk about those things is if you believe that I'm being genuine with you, that, that I genuinely care about you, that I care about the truth. That's the only way that this thing can work. But 
how you develop that, how, how you pursue what Jesus is talking about in Matthew chapter 5 is two things. Number one, we have to be devoted to being a community of true Christ. We have to be devoted to being a community of true Christ. In, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, it says there that the church is a pillar or a, a buttress of truth. That means we put the truth on display. We uphold the truth. We show the truth to the world. Uh, you might have, uh, you know, they have these little kind of like uh, half shells at Hobby Lobby. Um, you know, I don't, I don't go and buy them as such. Um, but all the women know what I'm talking about here. Uh, they have these little half shells that you can buy at Hobby Lobby, and you can put a little picture or a, something on there, and, and uh, maybe some of the men can make some little signs and say, no, I'm, I know what I'm doing. In our, in our house, you know, with, with me, all the walls will be blank and ugly, and my wife does a good job of that. But you, you put something on this little half shell, and it displays it, right? It comes out from the wall, and it shows it so that when people come by, they'll say, oh, that's so cool. It, you know, brings about a discussion. So that's the church when it comes to truth. We put the truth on display. We want people to see it. We want people to witness it in our lives. And if we fail to do that, if we fail to be a community of true Christ, a people that are devoted to truth, a people that are uh, committed to truth personally, and truth that we speak to it, and truth that's displaying that to the world, then what are we doing? Brethren, listen, if the church at the end needs truth, we're nothing more than a bunch of hypocrites. We're nothing more than a social club if we abandon the truth. And this is why Jesus comes in uh, John 8 and verse 31 and he says, you've obtained these for my truth. You are my disciples if you obtain the truth. And if you continue in that truth, the truth sets you free. It sets us free. And so we do need that truth. And this means that we depend, this devotion to truth, uh, to integrity, to honesty in a variety of different ways. We demand it from the pulpit. You should expect me to preach the truth. To preach the word, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. You should be able to expect it. The community should expect that of us. We have, a, we have, a, we have a, an obligation to uphold the truth within our pulpit, to, to show a different way, a, a different way to live, an alternative way to live to what the world is offering. Not only that, but we have to demand truth within our fellowship, amongst each other. Earlier, Ephesians 4, verses 25 and 26, we read, you have to speak truth to your neighbor. You have a moral obligation to speak truth to each other. You have a moral obligation to be honest with each other, to be people of integrity, not only to your neighbor, but to the neighbor that's sitting beside you in the pew this morning, to not be a Lon Chaney, to not put on a different face, but to be honest and say, this is how I feel, this is where we're going, and move forward. Otherwise, it's an illusion. It's a deception. And it's not pure. They should know that the truth is a priority in their life. And there should be high consequences for lying. If children do not learn when they are younger that lying is a serious consequence, then when it becomes much more convenient for them in the future to lie, they will. They will. Because it's easy. And it comes natural to us all at once. 
And so we, as, as those who are trying to cultivate truth fellowship in the world, the primary responsibility is going to be within the home. Whenever your children have to be disciplined for lying, there needs to be a serious conversation of, you know, why, why, why are we doing this? Why, why is daddy taking this so seriously? Listen, we, we tell the truth in our, in our homes. And, and even if the truth is going to cost you something, even if you're afraid to tell the truth, you're all, it's always going to benefit you to tell the truth. God expects you to tell the truth because you're reflecting his reality and his desire and his will. And that has to be cultivated within our homes. Whenever we look at our Lord and Savior, we see this incredible combination where it says Jesus in John 1 verse 30, Jesus was full of grace and truth. See, sometimes when we think of truth, we think, man, truth is harsh. Uh, truth is unbending. You know, truth maybe almost has to be rude and callous. But not so with Jesus. He was full of grace, and he was also full of truth. And so our pulpit, our fellowship together, our homes, and then from that, extending from that, our communities should be places that are full of grace, abundant in grace, and at the same time, full of truth. And if we get off on either one of those, we're moving in the wrong direction. So we have to be committed to being community secondly, we have to be faithful, absolutely faithful in the future. In Psalm 15 and verse 4, the psalmist is talking about, well, who can dwell with God? That's a good question, right? That's really essentially the question of, of all of human history, and I, definitely the question of Scripture. Who can dwell with God? Who can be with Him? And the psalmist says in Psalm 15 and verse 4, someone who swears to their own hurt and does not shun it. They swear to their own hurt and they do not shun it. They make a commitment and they keep it even if it's inconvenient. Now we like to find loopholes, don't we? We like to find those loopholes. We say that maybe we'll volunteer for something at the church, but something a lot more fun than that is coming up. And so we find a way of making an excuse to whoever is leading that event. You know, it's technically true. But it's a loophole to get out. Uh, we tell a friend that we're going to help them out. Maybe we say, hey, yeah, I'll help you move that Saturday. And then we get there and we realize that they rented the big weekend, right? So all of a sudden, we're looking for a loophole. I, I make this Saturday fine. Maybe we commit to helping someone financially, but then we realize it's going to make our budget a little bit tighter this month than we thought. Brethren and friends, we build an absolutely faithful pathway of trust among each other that we do that when we are committed to one another, when we are faithful to those things. When people can say, you know, I, I know that if something might come up or they've told me that they're going to do it and they're going to find a way to do it or they're going to help me work through it in some way. And, and to end this, we reflect the faithfulness of God himself. At the end of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus said, it will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's Jesus' way of saying, you're to reflect the character of God as you find his faithfulness revealed. And throughout scripture, what do we learn about God? If God makes a promise, if he says he's going to do something, what does he do? He does it, right? We sing sometimes, great is thy what? Faithfulness. 
great is your faithfulness to your promises. And so as image bearers, we are trying to reflect the goodness of God and the character of God. There's a faithfulness that is expected of me to my fellow man, to my friends, and even, as we'll look at next week, to my enemies. And so we are to reflect. There's a high cost that takes place. Please, when you exit from here, I'd love to see you reflect on the world. Will you reflect with gratitude and integrity to the world that you live in? But we are never closer to the heart of God than when we are willing to sacrifice our comfort and sacrifice our